This morning has been um, nothing short of fantastic. I'm just going to say that. Um, during first service and in our time of worship there, and even now, I just know God's got something in store. Um, you know, last week we didn't have um, church, obviously, and always missed that opportunity to worship together as a church. And But in, I'll admit, in the back of my mind, Come around Sunday afternoon, I'm going, well, I don't have to prepare for next week. I already got a sermon ready to go, right? And uh, actually, somebody contacted me and said, are you going to preach? Well, you're going to preach on this week, next week? I said, yeah. Uh, why would I do anything else, right? Because God said no. That's why. <laughs> um, with all that took place this week, and I knew what I was going to be preaching on in two weeks. God was like, no, you just keep preaching. You, that one you're going to use last week, you'll use that another time. You stay on track with what you were supposed to preach on on this day, February 18th. So today's message was planned out, you know, over a month ago. But I was going to push it back. God said, no, and there's a reason why. And now I know. After what took place this week, now I know. And then the songs that the worship team sang this morning, now I know. They didn't know what I was preaching on, and the songs that they sang this morning were like, this is the testimony of a blind man. The song we just sang, and actually I asked them that third song we usually sing, we're going to sing that after the message, because it is exactly what I believe the blind man would be singing to God that we're going to look at today in the story. And so I, I'm, with anticipation, I'm excited to share with you God's word and pray that not mine, but his words speak to you this morning. With that being said, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. We're dealing with miracles. The sermon series is miracles. If you're visiting with us, this is your first Sunday here. Welcome to True North. We're glad you're here. Um, we are in a sermon series called Miracles, looking at what God did in the Bible, and what Jesus specifically did in the New Testament, but what he is still doing today in our lives. John chapter 9 Starting verse 1 is where we're going to be. But before we start reading that, I have to back up to chapter 8 and help you understand what just happened in chapter 8. See, in chapter 8, Jesus had to deal with some bad people. Always dealing with bad people, right? People who hated him. Uh, they looked for every reason to be angry with him. As a matter of fact, if you look at the very last verse of chapter 8, it says this. At that point, they, being the religious leaders, picked up stones to throw at Jesus. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. That's a serious death threat. He just got done doing some great things, some great teaching, and these religious leaders are mad at him. Matter of fact, they picked up stones to throw at a young lady that was caught in a sinful act. They dropped those stones, after, but then at the end of this chapter, they picked those stones back up, and now they're going to throw them at Jesus. And most of us in that situation, here's the deal. If you're in that situation, you've got somebody that's got a death threat on you, and they're not maybe not picking up stones, they're picking up a gun, they're picking up a knife, they're picking up some other form of weapon, you're probably walking away from them looking over your shoulder, right? The amazing thing in this story is that <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus has his eyes moving forward. Yes, they're picking up stones. Jesus' eyes are forward looking at a man who's blind. Ironically, the spiritual leader's eyes... We're blind as to who Jesus was. And Jesus is looking forward at another man who is physically blind. And when you look at this chapter 8, last verse, and going into chapter 9, what I'm discovering right off the bat is this. 
these situations that come in our life, don't frustrate God. Oh, I got a death threat. Somebody coming after me. I got somebody I need to go help. Do you think when Adam and Eve first sinned that it puzzled or frustrated God? Like God looked down like, oh no, they ate of the fruit. What am I going to do? I just created everything and now they blew it. Think that frustrated God? Well, probably frustrated him, but did it frustrate his plans and, and change everything up for him and his purpose? No. God's plans and purpose cannot be frustrated or defeated. So let's pick up this story in John chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, Jesus' disciples, as they're walking along, they come to a point in time where basically the disciples are asking a question we've been asking for centuries. Disciples asked it here, and as he probably even asked before this, but put in a modern form of question, their question to Jesus was basically this, why do the innocent suffer, and why do the evil prosper? It was basically what they were asking. Was this man born blind because of his sin, because of what he did? And let me answer that right now. If he's born blind because he sinned, guess what all of us should be right now? Blind. Because we all sin, right? And their next question was, was he born because of his parents' sins? Well, in biblical times, there's three different scriptures you can specifically look at in Exodus 25 and 34-7 and Numbers 14-18. And those scriptures talk about, and the sins were placed upon the generation after generation. So the thinking was, my parents sinned, so I'm going to pay the consequence. Now, if that is true today, not only would I be blind, I'd be blind and deaf, Okay. Because my parents made a lot of mistakes too. And then my kids are in really big trouble. If that's the case. But here's the thing. These disciples are looking at the blame game, right? Because we've got to blame somebody. Jesus, there's something bad here. Who's to blame? Was it him? Maybe it was his parents. Somebody's got to be to blame. How soon after Wednesday's tragic incident down in Florida... Did we play the blame game? Who's to blame? What law? What politician? What group of people? We always, there's got to be somebody to blame, right? We have to blame somebody, and we're good at putting blame on others. But no man lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. Sin sets in motion consequences, a train of consequences. And in some parts of this world, It's believed that whatever we've done, now there's going to be a consequence as a result of it. If your belief were that of being Hindu, part of the caste system, that's what you would believe. And I want to share this with you. I want you to know what what Hinduism believes. Because there are Christians out there that believe this. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a Christian, you should not be believing this. You should not be using these terms. Because that is not of your faith. See, the Hindus believe in karma. Oh, we use that word, don't we? We've heard people use that karma. It's bad karma, good karma. Karma's come upon me. That's a Hindu belief, part of their caste system. Basically this, the law that good begets good and bad begets bad. If you do something good, you're going to get something good. You do something bad, something bad's going to come upon you. That's karma. That's the Hindu belief. Every action, thought, decision one makes, consequences, good or bad, returns that person in this present life or yet to come. That's what they believe. 
Then they also believe this. This is their next step beyond karma is reincarnation. Also known as the transmigration of souls. And I'm big apology to all of you uh, Lion King fans out here. Okay? When you start singing the circle of life, I will not sing it for you. But the circle of life, yeah, that's reincarnation that they're singing about. The journey of the circle of life where every person experiences a physical death and then they are reborn into a new life and then they die and they're reborn into a new life and they die and they're reborn into a new life. And if you are a good person, you're born into a better life. And if you're a bad person, you're born into a worse life. And you've heard people say, well, I hope I don't come back a cow. Why would you say that? Well, because I made a lot of mistakes. That's a reincarnation type thought. That is the Hindu belief. That is not Christianity. And then there's Nirvana, which is not a band, okay? That is, the, that is the goal of the Hindus. They want to, the, or the Hindu belief is, the Nirvana is the release after all that reincarnation to be released into a higher place. That is their heaven. So when you hear those terms, it is that Eastern religion has sort of, sort of filtered itself amongst Christians, and we sort of bring that in too, thinking, well, I've done something bad, so something bad's going to happen to me, or I've done something good, so something good's going to happen to me. That's false. Your salvation and your escape from this cycle of life is not good works. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, not works. Otherwise, we boast about it. Here's the truth. Good behavior is not always rewarded, and bad behavior is not always punished. That's what we see today, right? The innocent will sometimes suffer, and the guilty will sometimes flourish. That's what we see happening in life. And it doesn't seem fair, and we think, well, somewhere in the Bible says life is fair. It doesn't say life is fair. Matter of fact, Jesus makes it very clear that life isn't fair. No, that was never promised. We have this uncanny belief that living in the will of God is an insurance plan. It's not. Just because you're living in the will of God doesn't mean you're out of danger. Turn in your Bibles, and you might want to leave something here, and John, we're going to come back to it. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start in verse 32. Hebrews chapter 11 is considered that chapter of faith, and this person of great faith is like, it's like the hall of fame, but we call it the hall of faith, all these great people and their faith in God, right? More than halfway through the chapter, we get to verse 32. Let's read this. It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. Oh, there's so many heroes in the Bible. Verse 33. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire. They escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. That's an amen. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones once back again from death. It was almost like you're reading this. It's like these are superheroes. These are the Avengers. They have superpowers, right? Wait a second. That all sounds great, but we can't stop reading there. Because these men and women were in the will of God, right? God was doing great things. But look at the next part. But others were tortured refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute, 
and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Let me ask you this. Was that first half in the will of God and the second half of people not in the will of God? Sometimes the will of God isn't safe. When we think of God in temporal terms, it doesn't make sense. That's why we have to add eternity into the equation when we talk about God. Think about this. If God removes suffering whenever we were uncomfortable, would you be following him out of convenience and comfort, or would you still follow him out of love and devotion? Why was this man born blind? Why do bad things happen to good people? And Jesus' answer is that so that the power of God can be seen. Wait, what? That's it? He doesn't try to explain the sin and suffering. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you about what he did in his life or what his parents did. Let me tell you about what's going on in this world and the culture. And let me tell you about all these. He didn't try to explain it. He just said, let me tell you something. I want to tell you his sickness, his sin, his darkness, his life, whatever it is going on in his life that you have deemed as bad or suffering, it's so that the power of God can be seen. Period. Look at verse 3. Let's go back to John chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus said this, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen. Listen to this, verse 4 and 5. We must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night's coming when no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is standing by this blind man. He goes, I'm the light of this world. And that blind man, guess what he has seen his whole life? Darkness. Nothing but darkness. And when you look at the suffering, suffering is an opportunity to demonstrate the glory of God in our lives. Now, I know this is a sensitive subject. I've used this illustration before, but I know there's some of you new here, so let me share this illustration again. When Hollis Reeker tragically died in a car accident as a senior in high school, no doubt about it, her death was, was tragic. But during her funeral, the gospel was preached and lives were changed for eternity. Can't tell you how many lives were changed in a positive way for eternity out of that suffering. Two days later, another young man, just a year or two older than Hollis, died in an accident. And I did his funeral. And the funerals were so different. His lifestyle was not very godly. There are people who came to his funeral that had no hope, no peace, they were hurting. Because they did not have an eternal hope. Matter of fact, his best friend came up to the front at the funeral and said, I don't know where you are. And walked off. How hopeless is that? Similar tragedies, different outlooks. Why? I believe suffering is an opportunity to demonstrate the glory of God or to show the hopelessness of life without God. And as believers in Jesus Christ, God can still, can and will work through me and you to help others in times of suffering. So it's okay to ask why. But make sure you also ask God, give me understanding. Give me strength for this time. You see, the world isn't a vending machine where you put a coin in and you get something 
out that's particularly good or whatever, you know. Our actions have consequences. Good things happen as a result of good choice. Bad things happen a bad choice. But sometimes you make a good choice and you still get a bad result. Have you ever walked up to a vending machine before, put in your money, you push Coke and out comes a Sprite? Or maybe you push Milky Way and you get some uh, cheese puffs? And you're like, come on, I wanted the chocolate, right? It's like, why did that happen, right? As simple as an illustration that is, isn't that what happens in life? God, I did this good, but why did this bad happen? And we ask that question. Has anyone here ever made the right choice? You chose to be honest and you experienced disappointment and pain and you step back and go, I did the right thing and this is what I get? Next time I'll just cheat. Next time I'll just, do, right? Have you ever wagered with God or tried to manipulate him by saying, if I do the right thing, I know you're going to reward me for this. Maybe you've never said it out loud, but haven't you ever thought that before? If I do the right thing here, God's going to bless me. Haven't we tried to manipulate God with that kind of thinking? See, we can do right and still face problems and pain and suffering. Because this world's full of darkness. And regardless of whose fault it is, Jesus comes to bring light. What I'm learning is that there are things like this shooting that took place on Wednesday. It seems so senseless. And you hear people say, "We'll, we'll, we'll get over it. I'm going to share this with you right now. And I heard this from another person years ago, and I agree. And I like this. I don't know if we ever get over it, but I know we can get through it. I know we can get through it. And I know this is going to sound like a cliche, and I'm not going to ask for your forgiveness for saying it, but it's on the board. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. We say that, right? And I believe that. God is good. And all the time? Absolutely. And in this blind man's situation, as rotten as it was, it was about to get better because the light of the world was stepping into his life. He's going to do something new. There's scripture, John 8, 12 and John 12, 46. I want to read this to you. In John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. And then in John 12, 46, Jesus said, I've come as a light to shine in the dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. See, the light is a reminder that God's new creation in a time when he's going to make all things new and that light changes darkness. And as this man is about ready to receive his sight, the darkness in his life is going to get lit up in two ways, physically and spiritually. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Then he spit on the ground. He made mud with saliva. He spread the mud over the blind man's eyes, and he told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went out, and he washed, and he came back seen. Then that awesome? <laughs> Jesus just spit in the ground. We are so want to be so religious and so sacred and so proper at times about Christianity. And here's Jesus. Jesus spit? Is that is he able to do that? Can the Son of God do that? Because it sounds so, I don't know, unhygienic, repulsive. I don't know. Well, for all those baseball players out there, you ought to be going, praise God. You stand on the fence and you've got seeds in your mouth and you're spitting. You're being Jesus-like. Good job. 
Well, this wasn't new in biblical times. Matthew 7, 33, we find the only other passage in the gospel where Jesus used spit to heal. But it sounds, as I said, repulsive, but it was common in the ancient world. They, they thought spit was had some kind of healing process or help in it. And think about this. We cut our finger, we hit our finger. What do we do? We're like, mm. And we're like, why would Jesus do? Oh, wait, we do that too sometimes, don't we? Jesus used what was a common trend in the ancient world and probably on the thoughts of some people's mind. Jesus used healing by spit. And he gains a little faith from his patient in this moment. And here's the thing. He didn't have to use spit. Jesus could have just said, open your eyes, and he would have been healed. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't have to say anything. He could have touched him. He could have leaned into him and just whispered something. He chose to spit. And I think what is funny about it is that he spits into the ground, creating clay, which was actually work on the Sabbath, breaking the religious leaders' laws. As if these guys, remember they had stones ready to throw at him? And he walks away from them to go talk to this blind man. And they're probably still somewhat close. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But now he's like, it's the Sabbath. We're not supposed to break these religious laws. I created the Sabbath, by the way, Jesus is probably saying. And he's like, oh, watch this. This is really going to make them mad. <laughs> but then you think about the blind man. And the blind man's sitting and all he hears is... It's all he hears after Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he feels something wet on his eyes. And then he's thinking... Really? I mean, people come by, they probably kick me, make fun of me, right? And then this guy who calls himself the lie of the world, he just puts spit and mud on my eyes. I mean, when you think about this, it's like, what was he doing, right? Poor man. But while we're thinking about him, I want you to think something else about him. This poor man's never seen before. He's never seen before. Some of us get so caught up in the methods that Jesus used, like I was just sharing, but that's not the point. The point is the power of Jesus. Forget the methods he used throughout Scripture, but just consider the power of Jesus. This blind man doesn't know colors. He can't associate words and images together. If I tell you, Think of a dog, you all got a picture of a dog, don't you? A chair, you got a picture of a chair. A guitar, you got a picture of a guitar. You say that to that man, dog, chair, guitar, whatever it is, he doesn't know. He's never seen any of that. I was reading some stuff on eyesight, and I didn't realize that. Maybe I heard this, but I, I didn't realize it, but that when babies are born... Those first few weeks, they really can't see. So when we're sitting, they don't see it. They just see this blob, right? And we think we can just leave our little baby in its little, you know, its little chair, or little swing, or whatever. It's like it's okay. It can see me. It can hear me. I'm right here. It can hear you. It can't see you. You wonder why children need to be held. Physical touch is huge. In the infant stages. They need that touch. Because their eyesight isn't there yet. They don't have the security of looking around saying, somebody's here, I'm okay. They don't have that yet. This man didn't have any of that. There were no synaptic connections between the optic nerve and the visual cortex in this blind man's brain. There was nothing connecting all that. 
this miracle is more than correcting astigmatism or removing the cataract. Jesus is hardwiring this blind man's brain by creating a synaptic pathway that did not exist before. That's the power of Jesus. It's not about the spit. It's not about what he said or did. It's what he did, his power that amazes us. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and others knew him as a blind beggar, and they asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, yeah, he is. And others said, no, 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 looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, I'm the same one. Verse 10. They asked, well, who healed you? What happened? He told them. The man they called Jesus, calls him by name, made mud, spread it over my eyes, told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went, I washed, now I can see. I say it like that because there's an exclamation point behind it. It was like, and now I can see. No, now I can see. I didn't know what colors were. You talked about so-and-so, and and that's what they look like? I had no clue. I have no clue that this is what people look like. I could sort of feel myself and sort of figure out what a man is, but I can see somebody. I can see myself. This is what I look like. I had no idea what I look like. That's blue. Wow, that's green. Wow. It's amazing. And it's good news. And despite our dark times, and we don't know why things happen, the reason the way they do, we can know who can help us. And we can know when he steps into our life. And we can allow him to slap some mud in our eyes, something disgusting, something wrong, something we don't want to help us see like we've never seen before. He has the power to do that. And Jesus chooses a man born blind, never seen a light, daisy, a bird, or even a human face. This man doesn't know what color is, but during turmoil between Jesus and the religious leaders who they wanted they wanted to stone Jesus on the Sabbath, and he's, he's picking up a young man or an older man with a congenital disease, which is the only one we read about in the gospel, to heal. What kind of statements being made in this miracle? Jesus can bring light to the darkest of lives, both spiritually and physically. No matter where you are, whether you are physically in a place of darkness or spiritually in a place of darkness, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and I can take care of both of those situations. This man's blindness was not punishment. It was a part of a plan unknown to anyone except God, a plan to bring Christ into this man's life and give ultimate praise and glory to God. See, this act of mercy of God His timing is different than man's expectations. That's the way God works. We obviously don't like pain. We don't like suffering and tragedy. But we realize that in these bad moments, in these times, they provide opportunity for the power of God to be revealed. To blame God for the evil and suffering in our world is a warped view of God. I'll tell you why. Because the nature of God And our thinking do not line up with that. Here's what I know about God. He is too loving to be unkind. He is too wise to make mistakes. And he is too powerful to be thwarted in his infinite purpose. And for me to say that God doesn't care that he created all this to make my life miserable is wrong. Because this is truth. Romans 5, 8 says, But God showed his great love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. Do I deserve good things in my life? No, I'm a sinner. The wages of my sin is death. What do we all deserve? Pain and suffering. We deserve it. But while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. God says, this is what you deserve, but this is what I'll give you. New life. God is good, period. And for those of us who reject that truth, suffering is always going to be magnified and seems to be pointed at you. That is a blurred and blinded vision. You need a fresh vision of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. He wants to reveal to you that he is God. He wants to say, I need to remove something from your life, some distraction. So you can see I'm right here all the time. You might feel lost. You're not. 1989, when I moved uh, here to Ohio, I was on my first trip with a youth group. I was a youth pastor right out of college. First trip, and we're going to West Virginia. I mean, the youth leaders had already planned out the trip. We're going to go whitewater rafting and camping. And I'm just, you know, this greenhorn out of college. And, and here I am with the youth group and two vehicles, car, church van. I get to drive the church van, okay? We, uh, we have the Randy McNally maps, you know what I'm saying? Big open-up maps. We didn't have Siri. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have um, MapQuest. We didn't have any of that. You had to actually plan out your trip and diagram, right? We didn't have tons of credit cards of use. We had the church credit card, which the one car had, and we had some cash to cover other things, and I had a little bit. And I'm following their car. We're driving through West Virginia, and I'm following. They turn, I turn, you know, and we're having a good time talking to kids. Yeah, this is so fun. I'm so glad I'm a youth pastor. And I'm following the car. They turn off the highway. I turn off the highway. They turn into a neighborhood. I turn to a neighborhood. They turn into a house, and I realize I've been following the wrong car the whole time. Such a good youth pastor. Somehow we got separated. I spot, I guess I spotted a vehicle that looked just like the one we were following. I followed the wrong one the whole time. And I'm thinking, oh, this explains why we're going to this neighborhood. Because this isn't our group. And I was, I was lost. They had the map. No cell phones. They had the credit card. And here we are. So, you know, what do we do? Obviously, go to a gas station, buy a map, figure out a way home. Uh, so we get to a gas station, gas up with the little cash that we have, pull up, start filling up the van. I'm sitting beside the van, gas up, thinking, oh, Lord, I'm so lost. Don't let these kids know that I've blown it. Don't make me look bad. Help me to have a smile on my face, even though I really don't want to smile right now. And there's another car gassing up here and more cars and more cars. I get done gassing. I go to hang up the, the, the hose. The car pulls out, and right over on the other side is our car, the youth group. I'm like, Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> there was much rejoicing that day. How that all worked out, I don't know, except God, right? But I think about that moment, and it's so true. I was so lost. And here they were. Right, I, did, I just couldn't see them because these other vehicles are blocking them. Isn't that the way it works in life? We get so lost spiritually and caught up in things in our life. We're so distracted. We don't see God. He's right there. Because something's blocking, right? Church, we, we have to realize that humanity is blinded to a Savior. We are hurting and lost. I want to put some things up here on the screen and make a suggestion to you. Here's what's blinding us right now. 
from seeing God amidst all the suffering around us. History suggests that we're lost. From ancient Egypt to modern United States, history is a tale of the rise and fall of great civilizations uh, because of moral and social and cultural degeneration. Consider that the, the top five problems in a public school in 1950 were this. Chewing gum. Ooh, that was a big problem in the 50s. Talking while the teacher's talking. Sassing the teacher. Sassing. That's a 50s word. Okay. Not completing homework and being absent. Top five problems in education with youth 67 years ago. Today, the top problems in education are self-esteem and body image, depression and suicide, bullying and violence, drug and alcohol problems, cyber addiction. How do we solve all these issues? Where's the path that returns us to a time of better morals, you know, where we don't need metal detectors and we don't need undercover police or a call for condom distribution in school? Nowhere. Unless God brings revival. Unless God stirs up our hearts to return to him and godly principles, this is what we're going to be is lost. Politics, policies, armies, activists cannot change the heart. While there's good in humanity, humanity is inherently and fatally flawed by sin. History suggests we're lost. Our conscience suggests we're lost. Have you ever done something you know you shouldn't do? And you know it? It's like, I know I shouldn't have done that, right? And have you ever, have you ever not done something you know you should do? No, oh, I should have done that. Our conscience tells us, I'm not capable of doing good 100% of the time. And I'm, not, and I'm capable of not doing something good 100% of the time as well. My conscience reminds me that I blow it, that I'm lost. And my experience reminds me that I'm lost. We try to find purpose and meaning in life from career and education and accomplishments, believing this will satisfy, this will make me, hung, make me happy. But what do we discover? That there's still an emptiness there. There's still a hole. And it's like, I'm still not complete. My experiences remind me that I'm lost. And the death of Jesus Christ reminds me that I'm still lost. When you consider the physical agony Jesus endured on the cross, the beating, the pain, the torture, he did it for a reason. It wasn't like, oh, I wonder if I should do it. He did it for a reason. When you consider the spiritual agony Jesus endured, a holy God taking upon him the sinfulness of the world, he had to truly be offended and violated. When you consider the whipping, the beating, the scourging, the hanging on the cross, the physical agony he did, you consider all that. Why? Why would he endure the physical and spiritual pain for us? His crucifixion, the crucifixion, the only rationale is this, if humanity is lost, that's why he did it. Motivated by profound love, he decided to die in our place so that we could live for him. Spiritually, we're in trouble. Romans 3, 23. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the good news. The Bible leaves no room for debate. Humanity is blind and lost and in need of a Savior, just like that blind man was. Physically blind, spiritually blind, in need of a Savior. So are we. So what do we do? Let's wrap this sermon up with four quick suggestions. First of all, surrender. This, blind was, this man was blind, so he couldn't see Jesus, right? But guess what? He couldn't seek Jesus either. Romans 3, 10 to 11 says, No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. This is the gospel. We are in a state of hopelessness, 
blindness, and God moves towards us. And he's able to save us and give us sight. But we have to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have to surrender. We have to admit our sinfulness. Like that blind man, all we know is his name, Jesus, and that he can save. Yes. So accept his love. Seek his forgiveness. Repent. And then here's the next thing. Give praise. In the midst of your life, can you find reason to praise God? I believe you can. I believe you can. There's plenty to rant about on social media. There's plenty to, to share on social media about the great things, too, the accomplishments of our kids or things in our life. That is great, okay? But also share what God's doing in your life. If you're going to share all those other things, share what God's doing in your life. There's nothing more powerful than the testimony of a godly man or a godly woman and God working in their life. Did God just do something in your life? Share it with everybody. This blind man, he's walking around, I don't know, once I was blind, now I can see. His testimony was loud and proud for everyone. It gives hope to others. Pastor Matt Batterson said, He will recycle your pain for someone else's gain. I like that quote. Here's the third thing. Get busy. Jesus says, now's the time. There's only a short time to serve God. Serve him, serve him alone before it's too late. Bring light to where darkness is. Statistics say that our young people will come to know Jesus Christ between ages 7 and 18. That's where the majority of people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. After that, the numbers sort of decline. How important is it that we share Christ in our schools and encourage our parents to teach our children godly things? How important is that? School shootings, suicide, cyber, physical abuse. Hey, we have the answer. It's Jesus Christ. It's time for churches to reach out into the public schools. And I want to encourage you to pray and support our teachers and the administrators. Volunteer. Go to a teacher. Say, hey, you probably know what kid in your class is probably sitting by themselves at lunch or not getting much attention. Who can I pray for? Do you need me to come in and help volunteer? Do you need somebody to come in and read to kids? How can I help? Now, I understand some schools may or may not allow a lot of people to come in, but figure out how you can volunteer to serve or pray. After school programs, FCA, Youth for Christ, there's plenty of ministries out there where you can get involved in a school. Remember, Jesus engaged this blind man with a miracle. Remember, after he put the mud on his face, what did he do? He said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Part of that healing process was for us to get engaged and go do something. Jesus could have healed him on the spot, but he gave him instructions. This is what I want you to do. I'm giving you a new vision. I want you to go do something. And he gives us a new vision too. John chapter 13, 34 to 35 says, I'm giving you a new command to you. Love each other as I have loved you. Your love for each other will prove to the world that you're my disciples. You want people to know you're a Christian? Then love them with the love of God. The new command I'm giving you, Jesus say, I got a good suggestion. He goes, I got a command. You know the difference between a command and a suggestion? Get in your vehicle, drive down the road uh, where it's 35, drive 60. And when you get pulled over and you get a ticket, that officer is going to say, I don't know if you know this, but that 35 is a command. It was not a suggestion. Here's the thing. We are commanded to love one another. We're not suggested to love one another. Jesus says, I'm commanding you, love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He laid down his life for us. That's intense love. 
1 John 3.18, John says, let's just stop saying we love people, but let's really love them and show it with our actions. It's recently been said this, the church has been described as a field hospital after battle. America feels like a battleground after Wednesday's carnage at South Florida School. It's times like these that the church can fulfill its divine mission stated in Galatians 6.10. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. As a church, as God's people, let's engage God's love with this world. Greg Steers, all too familiar with the shootings. He's the one that started the Dare to Share ministry. His wife was a teacher in the Columbine High School area in that school district. She was a teacher. They were there when that all went down. And he talked to students afterwards, and the impact it had on him was he left the job that he had, and he started a ministry that was evangelistic to help kids share their faith with others. He did something. And I give God praise for our students who are after ball games, after events, after competition. They're circling up their peers and they're praying with them. They're going out to the flagpoles and praying with them. That's what we should be doing. Getting involved and engaged in the lives of these young people. Pastor Landon hopefully understands this, and I know he does. Our, and our youth leaders, hopefully you understand this, and I know you do, but I'm a firm believer that our children's and our youth ministry are one of the most important things a church can do. Because our young people need to know who Jesus Christ is and how God loves them. And we should support every time we can to help our kids out. And it's not about worshiping our kids or their accomplishments. It's about making sure they know who God is. It's about making sure they know that they're loved by the God that we worship. That Sunday mornings are sacred and that, that the God who loves them is with them wherever they go and they're not alone. And that they have a Savior who can help them in times of need. And when suffering's going on around them, it's okay. God's got this. After Jesus healed that man, the man was taken before the religious leaders and they questioned him. When Jesus heard what happened, he found that man. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. And Jesus said, you've seen him. Jesus said, he's speaking to you. He goes, yes, Lord, I believe. The man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Worship team, would you please come forward? Church, would you please stand with me? I'm not sure where each and every one of you are this morning. I know we're going a little bit longer today's sermon, but God's laid upon my heart to share this message with you. I know we've got a song or two, this next song that we're going to sing. We sang it earlier today. I'm thinking this could have been the testimony of the blind man. This could be the testimony of us who have had our eyes opened. Church, where are you at? Do you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? If so, surrender. Do you need to confess with your mouth? and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then make that decision. Repent. Let God take away your spiritual darkness. See that he is the light of the world. And maybe you've done that. Maybe you've already made that decision, but maybe now you're saying, you know what? I I need to go show God's love more. I, I have a testimony. I need to go share it. I need to take my light, the light that God has given to me, and take it into wherever it may be. To a school, into a workplace, I'm going to get engaged and bring in light into darkness. If you're a child of God in here this morning and you're dealing with pain and sorrow, hang in there. Time may not heal all your pain and wounds, but eternity will. Give God a chance to work in your life. Let him help you get through this. And pray for those that are going through it right now down in Florida.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. God, I pray that you're working in our hearts right now. And I, whether we need to confess and get our life right with you, let's confess today. Let's get it right with you. Maybe, God, we've got things right with you, but we've just sort of still been sitting around in our darkness wondering why, why, why. Help us, God, to trust you. Help us to take that light that you've given us and to shine for you in dark places. Help us to go out into this world and to love others with your love, sacrificial love. God, work in our hearts right now. As we sing this song, work in our hearts right now. In thy name we pray.